Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Since 1957, the Progressive Conservatives had been in power in Canada with the fiery John Diefenbaker serving as the Prime Minister of Canada. After winning the largest majority in Canadian history in 1958, Diefenbaker saw his majority become a minority in 1962. Soon, he would once again be up against the wall, with another election as the Liberals were ready to begin another dynasty. The 1963 election came about after the cabinet of Diefenbaker attempted to remove him as leader of the party and from the post as Prime Minister. The party was heavily split by 1963 over the issue of American nuclear missiles on Canadian soil. Diefenbaker opposed the scenario, while other Conservatives supported it, as did the Liberals. The issue would lead to Douglas Harkness, the Minister of National Defence, resigning on February 4, 1963, only two months before the election. Parliament had reconvened in late January, and with the resignation of Harkness, it would not last long. The entire Bormack missile issue was becoming something that could not be ignored. The Americans felt the Canadians had already agreed to have nuclear weapons on its soil through its NORAD obligations. Soon after, Harkness resigned, so too did the Associate Minister of Defence, Pierre Savini, and the Minister of Trade and Commerce, George Hees. With half of Diefenbaker's cabinet ready to resign, he stated that he would resign and appoint Minister of Justice Donald Fleming as acting Prime Minister pending a new leadership convention. In the end, Diefenbaker's allies convinced him to stay on, but the day after he decided to remain as leader, his government fell in a non-confidence vote. Canada was now heading for its fourth election in only seven years, and only eight months after the previous election. Well, Canada's 25th Parliament has adjourned for the evening. The likelihood is it may never meet again. The government, as predicted, went down to defeat on two non-confidence motions tonight as a result of all three opposition parties teaming together to overthrow it. The result of the second vote on the Liberal non-confidence motion was more or less a foregone conclusion after the government went down to defeat on a social credit non-confidence motion, which, among other points, criticized the government for incompetence in handling Commons business and failing to come out with a clear-cut defense policy. When the Speaker said, call in the members for the first vote, MPs gathered in little groups waiting for the division bells to stop ringing, the whips to enter, and the vote to be taken. The government House Leader, Gordon Churchill, could be seen with a pencil and pad. No doubt he was working out totals and trying to figure out if there was still a chance for the numerical survival of the government.
Another scene was when the Prime Minister left the Commons Chamber, a few, for a few moments rather, and stepped out into the lobby. There was a cheer from his supporters, which could be heard up in the galleries inside the Commons Chamber itself. Those galleries were jam-packed. I counted lines that were five, six, seven, and eight people wide, and which stretched down long corridors. Only a handful of those who came up to Parliament Hill tonight actually saw with their own eyes the tense drama which was played out on the floor of the Commons Chamber itself. In the bustling corridor of the Parliament buildings, CBC reporter Bill Beatty interviewed the leader of the Liberal opposition, Mr. Pearson. Mr. Pearson, what do you think comes now? Well, the uh, Prime Minister has to advise the Governor General what to do. We assume that will mean dissolution and a general election. But until the House is dissolved, we just can't be certain of anything. This should take place tomorrow. And well, then, is there uh, any sidestepping maneuver that could be undertaken now? Oh, there are always some sidesteps, but I hope there won't be any possible on this occasion. What plans are you making right now, sir? My plan now is to go home and get some sleep. <laughs> and then we'll start into work tomorrow. we got to go to the library. We have to wait until the actual dissolution takes place before we can make any plans. It's, uh, it's not wise to plan ahead until you know exactly what you're planning for. And until the House is dissolved, Parliament is dissolved, we'll just wait. What date do you think we'll see an election? Well, you have to have 59 days, I believe, after the date of dissolution. Uh, you can work back from, uh, work forward from that. It can't be, uh, perhaps April, no, sometime in April, I, I should think. There is no limit on how long it could be from now, though. Well, no, but there has to be 59 days from the date of dissolution. Uh, March and April are a wonderful months in Canada to campaign. <laughs> did you think you'd ever see this day work out the way it did, sir? Yes, we, we, we thought this would happen about this time in the way that it did. The Liberals, coming off a high of bringing down the government and with momentum on their side, used the slogan, 60 Days of Decision. Unlike the previous election, the party made several large promises including creating a public pension plan, reforming health care in Canada, and creating a new Canadian flag. For most observers, it was clear that the Liberals were going to win as the Conservatives collapsed. For Diefenbaker, he fell into the role that he preferred, the underdog and he went into the election with new vigor. He ran a whistle-stop tour through small-town Ontario, where he criticized the Liberals for changing their stance on the missiles and suddenly supporting them, the Americans interfering in Canadian affairs, and the minor parties in Parliament who were obstructing progress. Diefenbaker also played the nationalism angle much more this election than previously. Pearson would comment to his wife on election night regarding people voting for Diefenbaker, even though there was selling of their wheat to China. Pearson would say, quote, Don't forget all those little whistle-stop tours he made, all the personal handshaking. People like to think you care about them. Say what you will. There's nothing like the personal contact. End quote. While campaigning was the strength of Diefenbaker, it was definitely the weakness of Pearson, and not something he enjoyed. But as the campaign went on, Pearson would begin to fall into the role, and he did well at it. The Globe and Mail would state, quote, Mr. Pearson is not a good speaker. His words from election podiums may not inspire Canadians, but his actions in the world crises have inspired the world. End quote. In Quebec, the Liberals attacked the Social Credit Party, and newspapers throughout the country began to endorse the Liberal Party. The Conservatives would make several promises, including raising the pay of the civil service and the members of the armed forces. 
Pearson responded that not raising the pay until after the election was rubbish. He would state, quote, The Prime Minister had from June until the end of January to do this if he wanted to. This is just another electoral excuse for not taking action. End quote. Diefenbaker would attend a rally at Queen's University where he stated that the policy of Pearson would make Canada a decoy for Soviet missiles. He added, quote, It would mean the wiping out of North Bay in a section of northern Quebec. End quote. And while there were 12 amplifiers for his voice, the crowd of 6,000 could not hear him over the yells of 500 Queen's University students. Associates with Diefenbaker would state that it was the hardest night of his long years of campaigning. And while the students yelled, Diefenbaker responded by calling them savages, juveniles, and bummers. Then, after 70 minutes of talking, he stated, quote, It is 10 o'clock and time for the juveniles to go to bed. End quote. He then left the hall to cheers from the students. Three days later, an apology from the principal of Queen's University was issued. On election night, Pierre Burton would spend the evening with Pearson and his wife. Upon his arrival, Pearson had just got off the phone with a complete stranger who had made a $10 bet on the outcome of the American League baseball pennant. At the time, anyone could call Pearson and his phone was ringing every 15 minutes in the weekend leading up to the election. In the April 8, 1963 election, the Liberals increased their seat count by 29, rising to 128 and earning a minority government. As for Diefenbaker, only seven years after he had come to power as Prime Minister, he was now in the official opposition. In all, the Progressive Conservatives lost 21 seats to fall to 95. The Social Credit Party lost six seats to finish with 24, and the New Democratic Party lost two seats, finishing with 17. Well, Robin, we've just been informed that the national leader of the Liberal Party, Mr. Lester B. Pearson, is standing by in uh, Liberal headquarters in the Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa. So now let's go to Ottawa and Mr. Pearson. In terms, that is, of a final result. It is an unfinished election at the present moment, in the sense that it is not yet clear whether any party will have a clear majority in the House of Commons or not. But the only party that can secure that majority, of course, is the Liberal Party. And it may be that when the soldiery vote is counted, the service vote is counted by the end of the week, it may be that the Liberal Party will have a clear majority in the House of Commons, but that is not yet known. Until that is known, it would be very foolish of me, of course, to make any definitive pronouncement at this time, and I do not intend to do so. It is, however, clear that the conservative government of Mr. Diefenbaker has suffered a second drastic defeat in one year. The results that we have now show that uh, 45% of the popular votes went to our party and only about 32% to his party, 12%, I believe, to the Social Credit Party, and 11% to the New Democratic Party. So uh, you will have to wait to hear from me when I know what the final result is, and when we decide, when we know what the final result is, then we will, in all our parties, know what to do, and what we will all do, I hope, will be what is best for our country at this time. The Liberal Party would take the majority of seats in Ontario with 51 seats to the Progressive Conservatives, 27, and 47 in Quebec, while the Conservatives only managed 8. 
the Social Credit Party continued to be a force in the province, winning 20 seats. The Progressive Conservatives were able to take every single seat in Saskatchewan and the majority of seats in Alberta and Manitoba. And with a minority government, everyone waited to see what Diefenbaker would do as sitting PM. Pearson would say, quote, It is for Mr. Diefenbaker to decide what his responsibility is. I know what mine is. End quote. By April 13th, Diefenbaker made the decision to resign, while six social credit MPs pledged support for the Liberals, giving the party a working majority. Diefenbaker would send a telegram to Pearson stating, quote, As soon as the service vote was announced, I immediately tried to get in touch with you by telephone, but was unable to do so. Therefore, I take this means of conveying my congratulations. I will be glad to meet with you personally on Monday to discuss with you the changeover of the government. End quote. In one Quebec riding, a man would be elected for the first time. His name was Jean Chrétien, and he would remain in Parliament for the next 41 years. For 10 of those years, he served as the Prime Minister of Canada. Now we're going to fast forward two years to get to the 1965 election. Over the previous two years, Lester B. Pearson had governed Canada and followed through on several promises that his party had made, including implementing Canada student loans, higher wages, lowering income tax, and reversing the unemployment trend. The Liberals had the support in the House of Commons, so they did not need to call an election, but the economic climate had improved and it gave the Liberals confidence that they could win another election. There were issues with this choice, though, as Pearson was known to be a weak campaigner, and Diefenbaker, even with his shaky ground in his own party, was one of, if not the best campaigner Canada had ever seen. With the new election, the Liberals campaigned on promising a national Medicare program by 1967 and a Canadian pension plan. The party would campaign under the slogan of good things happen when a government cares about people. The Liberals promised to put $40 million into a university scholarship program and $500 million for medical and dental research over 15 years. They would also put $100 million into building roads in northern Canada and $25 million to support the coal industry in Nova Scotia. Pearson, for the most part, stayed in Ottawa for the campaign as the party opted for a low-key prime ministerial strategy. John Diefenbaker was still the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, but his party was deeply divided and many wanted Diefenbaker out as leader. Diefenbaker and his party would campaign on the slogan of Policies for People, Policies for Progress. In effect then, from CBC Edmonton, we, with fingers crossed, introduce Joe Clark. Thanks. Thanks very much, Brad, and I'm uh, naturally pleased to bring light to the darkness. Uh, I agree with Tony that there is one central issue in this campaign, and it is generally that the Prime Minister and the Liberal backroom boys are trying to sneak this election past the Canadian people. They called the election when it was neither needed nor wanted, and when it would deny the vote to thousands of young university Canadians. But no recent federal election has been more important especially to younger Canadians. We are moving as a nation from an old way of life to a new way. And the central question in this campaign is which party is best suited to govern the new Canada. I am an active conservative because I deeply believe that the conservative party alone possesses that innovating spirit which a growing nation needs. We proved it in office. Even the critics applaud the progressive new conservative policies in agriculture, in justice, in social justice, in trade, in vocational training, in other areas. And now we want to move in education, 
in urban development, in resource development. And the Liberals, by contrast, want to sneak into office. Canada can't afford another old guard government, and especially the young can't afford it, because we will live here the longest, and we have the most to gain from a conservative government on November the 8th. Thus the progressive conservative perspective on this current election. The conservatives would offer grants to universities, farmers, and to medical and dental research. They would also create a national water conservation program and develop hydroelectric potential at several important rivers in Canada. As with the previous elections, Diefenbaker played to his strengths and conducted a whistle-stop tour of small towns in Canada, where he attacked the Liberals continuously on every front, labeling them as a corrupt and arrogant party. He would state, quote, We shall get to the bottom of this and assure Canadians that the cobwebs of the mafia, the wrongdoings of the narcotics peddlers, and the corruption of public officials does not make a way of life, end quote. When allegations of bribe offers to six social credit MPs in the 1963 election came forward, Diefenbaker would attack the Liberals heavily over it. He would state, quote, Vote Liberal on November 8th, and you declare an open season for organized crime, end quote. Pearson would keep his silence over the issue, only stating that there had been no offer of a bribe to any MP or to anyone else. The Liberals would call the entire matter scandal-mongering. As it turned out, nothing came of it. The major issue of the campaign was old-age pensions, with the Liberal Party promising to increase pensions to $75 per month for anyone over the age of 70, and reducing the eligibility age to 65 within five years. There would also be the promise to add a Canadian assistance program for seniors with low incomes. The Progressive Conservatives offered to increase the pension to $100 per month for everyone over the age of 70. Pearson would state, quote, We have made it $75 and we will make it $100 or, if necessary, more than $100 in cooperation with the provinces. End quote. The New Democratic Party was still led by Tommy Douglas, who campaigned on the slogan of Fed Up, Speak up, vote for the New Democrats. They would campaign on the issue of Medicare, eliminating tuition fees, increased funding for technical training, and increasing the minimum price for wheat. Early in the campaign, the Liberals were riding high and many projected a sweeping win for the party, including all 21 Montreal area ridings. The West would continue to be a problem for the party, though. One farmer wife outside Saskatoon would say, quote, Maybe the Liberals will win again, but the farmers have to have something here. That's why we vote Conservative. We don't care who wins. End quote. One new party to appear in this election was the Rhinoceros Party of Canada, led by a black rhinoceros named Cornelius I. A resident of the Granby Zoo, he could not seek election as he was a zoo animal. While Pearson was popular, his weakness on the campaign trail began to hurt him, and as Diefenbaker once again played to his strength, he started to move up in the polls. As the election got closer, what seemed like it was going to be a liberal majority was soon turning into a liberal minority. On October 28th, Pearson was speaking in Toronto when his public address system failed and the crowd of 10,000 people could not hear him. To deal with the issue, Pearson went into the crowd to mingle. Before long, the crowd was crowding around Pearson, who was jammed in by well-wishers. The five-man body group of the Prime Minister had to push their way through the crowd to get to Pearson to take him out of a side door and into the basement. Pearson's wife was none too pleased, calling it too dangerous to attempt again for the Prime Minister and that it had scared her to death. Pearson would say later, quote, I was scared, 
badly scared that somebody was going to get hurt. Somebody small, some woman or a child, crushed or perhaps trampled. End quote. It wasn't all well-wishers for Pearson, though. In British Columbia, the Prime Minister spoke to a crowd of 4,000 at the University of British Columbia. While speaking, someone yelled, What's new, pussycat? as the crowd erupted in laughter. Unfazed, Pearson continued to speak for 35 minutes, even as others yelled, Go back to the U.S., Mike, Canada for Canadians, and People are dying in Vietnam. In Montreal, it was a more dangerous situation for Pearson. After the Prime Minister had finished speaking, a Molotov cocktail connected to a firing mechanism was discovered in the hall. It was found by employees of the building after the rally had finished. In Peterborough, extra precautions had to be taken to protect Pearson when a call came in to a television station that stated, quote, You better get a camera down to the Empress Hotel if you want a good shot, because when Pearson steps out there, he'll get the same thing Kennedy got in Dallas. End quote. In the days before the election, the party leaders would make a push for the final votes. Polls would find that Diefenbaker was starting to lose support in his own area of Saskatchewan. One housewife in Saskatoon was quoted as saying, quote, If Diefenbaker would stop all this attacking everybody and just say what his program is, what he will do, I might still vote for him. End quote. Another man, a 1963 Liberal supporter who worked as a salesman, said that he couldn't vote for the Liberals because he saw them as being politically corrupt. Asked if he would vote Conservative, he stated, quote, No, I wouldn't vote Conservative. I can't support Diefenbaker. End quote. Pearson and the Liberals would once again win the November 8, 1965 election, increasing their seat total by three, which was just short of a majority. The Progressive Conservatives picked up four extra seats to finish with 97, while the New Democratic Party finished with an extra four seats, finishing with 21. The Liberals would do poorly in the Canadian prairies, but would take 51 seats in Ontario to the 25 won by the Progressive Conservatives, and 56 seats in Quebec, where the Conservatives only had eight. The Progressive Conservatives took every seat in Saskatchewan, and 15 of 17 in Alberta. They would also take 10 of 14 seats in Manitoba, 10 of 12 in Nova Scotia, and every seat in Prince Edward Island. In Algoma East, the home riding of Pearson, one man would have an issue with the ballot that listed Pearson as Prime Minister. He would state, quote, I'm appalled by the use of the title on the ballot. Mr. Pearson's occupation is not Prime Minister. Mr. Pearson is not running in this riding as a Prime Minister. He is only running as a candidate for election in Algoma East. End quote. Diefenbaker was elated over the election result that denied his opponent a majority. He would state, quote, The Prime Minister called this election because he said he couldn't carry on without an absolute majority. The Prime Minister has had his answer. There is a second party, a party of 101 or 102 seats, which believes that it can form an administration and a strong administration and carry on the government of this country without having hanging over it at all times the danger of another election. End quote. Pearson would state, quote, I am still Prime Minister and still head of the government, and all of us are concerned now with carrying on in the best interests of the country. End quote. Upon their re-election, the Liberals obtained the support of the new Democratic Party, helping them to remain in power. This election is notable because it was the first time a man named Pierre Elliott Trudeau would be elected to Parliament. Three short years later, he would be the Prime Minister, serving from 1968 to 1979 and 1980 to 1984. 
With me is Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the winner in Mount Royal. Mr. Trudeau, the Liberals did very well in Quebec, but they didn't do so well in Canada. What's your opinion on the outcome so far? Well, you're asking me now. I haven't seen the results uh, too well. I just come from my riding, and uh, I wish you wouldn't ask me too much about things I don't know, unless you want to explain me what the results are. Well, it looks as though the Liberals are not going to get a majority, the majority that the Prime Minister was looking for. Oh, well, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I think the Liberals, had they had a majority, if they do have a majority, will be able to show the kind of strength at Ottawa, which is needed now if we want to keep... Um, confederation steady if we want to have a, a government in Ottawa which can negotiate with other nations and with the provinces uh, knowing where it will be sitting the next day. But uh, that, that, that is a might have been now. If, it, if this isn't what is going to happen, I still think that the Liberal government can do a darn good job in Ottawa and I'm sure that uh, all of us will be fighting to see that this job gets done and I think the onus will be on the opposition now to uh, try and defeat any laws which we think are urgent for uh, for the future of this country. Mr. Trudeau, uh, it was said that at one time that you were probably going to run, if you did run for the NDP, you're running for the Liberals. Why? Well, if this was said, it is wrong. I was never in the New Democratic Party, though in the past I have supported at various times uh, various political uh, possibilities. I did support in 1963, the New Democratic Party. I did support in 1962, the Liberals, and in 1960, the Liberals. So really, I, from the outside in the past, I have uh, taken a different stand according to the political situation at the time of that election. At the time of this election, I have decided that not only I would support or vote for the Liberals, but I would join the Liberals and help them uh, make the kind of fight that I thought essential for this country. Thank you very much, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the winner in the constituency of Mount Royal. Alec Bellini in Montreal. As for Diefenbaker, he refused to resign until finally a campaign was launched by his former campaign manager, Dalton Camp, which forced the 1967 leadership convention. Diefenbaker would run to continue on as leader, but he would lose to Robert Stanfield. It wouldn't be the end of Diefenbaker, though. He would remain in the House of Commons until his death 12 years later in 1979. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the 1963 and 1965 election. Tomorrow, the 1968 election. And I would like to say I work very hard on these. I'm putting out an episode every single day about every single election in Canadian history, so any kind of promotion on social media I will truly, truly appreciate. Make sure you tag me, Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons, and if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, 
Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean's Dynasties and Interludes Wikipedia, Ottawa Journal, Vancouver Sun, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and the Edmonton Journal. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.